you're listening to Sci-Fi Saturday Night with the Dome. Sci-Fi Saturday Night. We will begin a mass invasion. We'll tell your people to surrender now and avoid war. It is now time for us to put Earth under our roof. It's your sacred duty to tell us the truth. Confess, confess, and you will give you witchcraft. You expect me to believe that you can overrun the entire world? We cannot be defeated. We have never been defeated. That is the message to bring your people. Yeah, they're dead. They're all messed up. Five by Saturday night. Welcome yet again to another Area 51 recording of Sci-Fi Saturday Night, the only podcast to guarantee that uh, if you listen to it, you'll listen to Captain Cam and me. Uh, it's rather a new way of doing it. It's two of us here instead of like six. We've only been doing it this way for about a year since the pandemic brought everything else to a screeching halt. So tonight, it's Creepy Crawling Cthulhu and the Asylum Choir Night, podcast number 475. Yeah, we've been doing it that long. We're still social distancing here in Area 51 because the world needs us to. So we're doing it here. The World Wide Web being clogged as it usually is during social distancing year, as it were. So with a paired back cast and the rest of that, at some point, Captain Cam will figure out what that actually means. And we're working towards our 500th episode. Captain Cam has once again, for an entire week, said absolutely nothing to me about all the feverish planning that he's doing. Nor has he said anything about taking anybody's temperature here in Area 51. So how's that coming, by the way, Captain Gam? Well, if you give me a thermometer, I'd take my own temperature. But, you know, you keep the temperature in this little, I don't know what you want to call it, freezer. Hovel. Fairly low. So, you it's know, I a hovel. I hovel that too. Okay. Yeah. So it can't be that cold. But, you know, things are coming along slowly but surely. We've, we are making plans. We're putting, we're checking our lists and making them twice or making our lists and checking them twice. That's Santa Claus. Um, so, but yes, we uh, we we are just just seeing who we can bring on the show for some surprise guests, and uh, we're we're gonna once get again a, you've done nothing. Song, this is your life. Yes, pretty much. You've done you've done nothing. Okay. Yes. So we have <laughs> we have twenty we have twenty four slots ahead of it, and you've planned absolutely nothing. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I recall that I had said I want no balloon animals because doing balloon animals on an audio podcast is a really bad idea. You also said I could bring ponies. So once you said I couldn't bring ponies into the show, I just, you know, lost all interest, to be honest. Well, the idea of bringing ponies into Area 51 is a bad idea because they have to come up a flight of stairs. Ponies, stairs, bad idea. Again, only going up. No, no, no. The way, the other no way bringing them back down the stairs is a worse You're right. idea. You're right. It's going back oh. downstairs. So just as long as they live up there, you know, we just, you know, we set up a little place for them. No, you cannot. You will okay. not. So I, I have this this friend 
who over the years has written, 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 oh God, <laughs> the idea of ponies going down the stairs has just totally thrown me. Thank you so much. Uh, has written some, some great science fiction stories and, and novels that I really, really liked. And he has this really dark side to some of the stuff that he's written because he has this, this, this Lovecraftian side to him that I, I knew that he wrote, but I, I'd never really read before. Uh, and I'd never really read it because I couldn't pronounce most of the characters <laughs> in it. And I, Lovecraftian fiction was never really my thing uh, because A, couldn't pronounce it, and B, uh, realized that it was way out of my depth, way out of my league, and that I really, at some point, was going to get into it because C.T. Phipps was, was writing it, and it was really good. So when I saw that he had edited a book of short stories, uh, and he said, hey, you want to read this? I went, yes, I do please send it along and, and let's talk about it on the show. And he did. Uh, so uh, once again, welcome back, CT. Uh, it's great to have you back on, my friend. Hey, it's wonderful to be here. I always enjoy these interviews with you. And you know the funny thing? This is actually the second Lovecraftian anthology I've written, and it kind of ties into a duology I wrote of Lovecraft uh, set in the post-apocalypse world called the Cthulhu Armageddon series. I may do a third book in that sometime. Okay, so you've got to help us out here by helping me with the title, mm -hmm. which is... Tales of yogg -Sothoth. Thank you. Now I know how to pronounce it. Mm -hmm. Now, Yogg-Sothoth is a particular character which is not known to people who have only a passing fancy with Lovecraft, who may have only heard of Cthulhu. Now, I know that there are some people who are very close to me who are deep into Lovecraftian mythology, who are now laughing at me hysterically for not knowing who Yogg-Sothoth is. Please enlighten us. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. You're actually doing it right, which is the really funny part about all this. H.P. Lovecraft had the idea that familiarity breeds contempt when it comes to horror. He had the idea that, you know, as scary as a vampire is supposed to be, eventually, if you overuse it, and it's been overused for about a century, and it was overused in Lovecraft's time, at least according to him, uh, it'll stop being scary because you know the rules and the ideas behind it. So he created monsters that have no rules or sensibility to them, and they had unpronounceable names, and the very idea of looking at them drove you mad, so you couldn't understand them because they didn't obey the laws of man as they were supposed to, which offended him both as a scientist and an amateur occultist. So the whole idea is you're not really supposed to be able to pronounce Yogg-Sothoth or any other character's name. The fact we all agree Perfect. Cthulhu. <laughs> is actually a thing. Yogg-Sothoth is one of the big gods of H.P. Lovecraft's world, even though he was a materialist atheist. The idea was it's kind of this all-powerful alien intelligence which wants to come to our world and uh, tear things up because, well, we don't know. Uh, it just does. It the just... history is what part of what makes it so scary. Now, what made you 
uh, bring together uh, such Lovecraftian crafters such as Matthew Davenport, David Nile Wilson, and David Westlake, David West, I'm sorry, not David Westlake, that's a very, very different guy, to, to uh, work in this anthology. Well, I knew all of them from roughly working in the same area. Uh, David Neal Wilson is a former uh, Horror Writers Association president. He's won the yes. show board a couple of times. He's a great guy. He actually really mentored me through a lot of my early bumps in the road of being a, a fiction writer. And when I was deciding to do an anthology of Lovecraftian fiction, because, again, I wrote two novels in it, uh, he was the first guy to come just because I was like, hey, can you lend this little anthology some cred? <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Matthew Davenport. Uh, I read his uh, book, The Trial of Obed Marsh, which is a book that is a fake biography of uh, one of Lovecraft's major characters. Uh, he was a sea captain who corrupted his town with unholy packs with the deep ones and fish people. And uh, he also wrote a, an Indiana Jones versus Lovecraft kind of book series called the Andrew Doran series. So uh, we had been friendly and uh, exchanging uh, reviews and thoughts on each other's work for a while now. And uh, through him, I got to know David Hambling, who also wrote H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh, themed novels of the Harry Stubb series and David J. West. And together we were just like, well, why don't we all work together and uh, see what we can cram out? We're all kind of the same pulpy uh, punch-and-shoot monsters rather than run-away-of-them kind of field. <laughs> the cool thing about this book is that, and I don't know quite how to describe this, is that each of these stories is but isn't a horror novel. If you strip away the Lovecraftian aspect of it, of of each of your two stories, the true name of God stands as a great mystery short story. And if you strip away the Lovecraftian aspects of the final gate, it stands as a great dystopian science fiction novel. I think of uh, that's one of the better elements of H.P. Lovecraft is he was one of the first mishmash authors. Uh, it's not quite science fiction. It's not quite horror. Yeah. And, and it's the same with every story in this book. And it, I think it may be the first time I've actually realized that about Lovecraft is that there's this, the mythos that sits atop it is really kind of like the frosting on the cake. It's, it's, and I, I think, thanks to you, I've finally begun to realize that more than anything else about this whole uh, this 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 whole wonderful world. And I, I credit you with this more than anything else because I've finally begun to come to come to terms with it and understand it in a way that I've never really understood it before. Thanks. Uh, I think H.P. Lovecraft uh, himself cited that he was kind of influenced by Edgar Allan Poe and kind of influenced by uh, the weird pulpy magazines of the day, which he all wrote to. And uh, they all sort of uh, bled together into his writing because he wanted to write science fiction and he wanted to write horror. And they kind of bled into each other. But he also threw in magic and the occult because uh, – 
those things just were incompatible with his worldview. And what could be scarier than finding out the world doesn't work uh, the way you think it does? And so he would have these uh, Van Helsing kind of noble scientist uh, heroes and they would encounter something that could not be scientifically classified or studied and it would eat them rather than they triumph over it. With rare <laughs> yeah. I mean, he had a couple of heroes who actually managed to uh, pull uh, one over on the mythos there. We, and I tend to be more influenced by them than the other ones because, uh, you know, it's great for short stories, but if you're going to go a full novella, you kind of hope that there's some kind of victory at the end for the quote-unquote good guys, even if mine tend to be on the anti-hero side. Uh, you mentioned uh, two of my stories, uh, The Final Gate and The True Name of God. And the funny thing about that is the first one is set during the Third Crusade, and it stars an assassin. And I mean that in the right. literal uh, cult of uh, killers uh, kind of sense there, and not the Assassin's Creed sense. Uh, and the other one is set in a post-apocalypse dark tower. Dystopian future, sure. Yeah, uh, the world's been destroyed by the great old ones. You know, give them the credit. They actually uh, were going to destroy the world. And no one was going to pull a victory over at the end. Uh, but humanity is still niggling around uh, in patches of survivors like the Walking Some Dead. Some kind of humanity, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, and even, even then, th what's left of humanity isn't quite entirely human either. No, but I mean, the very last line, and I'm not, I swear to God, I'm not going to give it away, but the very last line of that short story is like, boom, drop the mic, we're done. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I sat there, I looked at that last line, I went, classic, just classic. I, it was kind of hilarious when I said I, that the Cthulhu Armageddon were my serious stories. And David Neal Wilson, who is also my publisher with his Crossroad Press, uh, that's grown from being a tiny uh, press to being like a mid-tier publisher of significant size. He says, I'm like, Charles, you, m those books are hilarious. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you, you can't not make fun and have your characters uh, snark uh, during horrifying, terrible moments. Absolutely. I mean, I, I said, I, I actually read that last story first. That was the first story that I read in the book. And I, I don't know why it just kind of happened that way. And I just kind of went classic. Thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah. And go ahead. So and I have a quick line because I think it'll uh, encourage people to want to read it. Yeah, go for it, though. OK. Does anyone know how to drive a spaceship? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a great it's a great last line. I love it. It's just, it, it's worth the price of admission, quite frankly, worth the price of admission. And one of the fun things <laughs> I really love about this is while, you know, your first story and your last story are really, really cool, there is a thread that passes through all of them. This isn't just a bunch of unique and individual uh, stories. You know, that just, you know, you said, you know, write something with Yogg-Sothoth, you know, and you write something with Yogg-Sothoth. There is a there is a thread that runs through all of these stories so that they all connect through time from, you know, what was it? Eleven hundreds, I think, was when the first one was set all the way up to whenever the end times are um, in your, your final story. There is a, a thread through it, even though. The other books are written by other offers. So I, my curiosity was, 
who reached out to who, who, you know, who said, you know, let's do this. Was it you? You know, you had your first story and your last one and you kind of reached out to these other authors. And if that was the case, how did you, you know, bring them in? You know, this, what did you give them for information or did you give them any information? You know, what did you give them to play with as far as, you know, when you invited them into your universe that you created here? It's kind of funny, but if I had to explain where the origin of Tales of Yogg-Sothoth and his predecessor book, Tales of the Al-Azif, the answer would be the Nintendo GameCube. Oh, I want to hear this. <laughs> oh, yes. You see, during the Nintendo GameCube's heyday of about 2002, there was a game called Eternal Darkness. And it was a, made in a Lovecraftian style as a alternative to Resident Evil, but they only made one game of it, but it really is good there. And the premise of Eternal Darkness uh, is that there's this occult, monstrous, evil tome that passes through a family and uh, various other people. And the game consists of the stories of each member of the bloodline and the people who opposing them uh, that managed to get the book. And this woman in the present who is following their stories, trying to figure out how to deal with the book that's uh, going to ruin the world and destroy everything. But she needs to understand every little individual story and how it relates and how the book got from point A to point B to point Z. And I always thought that was a really clever way of doing a video game. And, yeah, it sounds like a really clever one. Oh, yes. And uh, that actually was more directly the inspiration for Tales of the Alazes because uh, I knew a bunch of people who were H.P. Lovecraft uh, writers, but, you know, there wasn't really much attention to uh, cross and crossover between our fandoms. I mean, everyone loved Lovecraft, and they would occasionally pick up uh, something by another author because H.P. Lovecraft was an early proponent of what we would call open copyright because he said, like, go ahead, use my characters and monsters, which is kind of funny because uh, a company actually claimed to have the copyright on H.P. Lovecraft's writings for 80 years while not. Not naming There's names, a, but that's yeah. kind of hilarious. Yeah. Because one of the things I was talking with Dome is you when you read uh, the Conan books by Howard, um, there is a lot of references to H.P. Lovecraft's you know, mythos in those books. It's, and it's so even it, 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 it's even funnier because uh, Howard uh, uh, Phillips Lovecraft and Robert E. Howard were what we would consider Internet best friends. Uh, they were constantly uh, communicating via letters uh, uh, during their life and uh, were probably as close as friends as any person uh, the other knew, even though they lived across the country from one another. Yeah, that's what I've, I've read. I've read that they were very close. And so that kind of explain why whenever I read the Conan stories, I'd run into these names I'd seen in Lovecraft and go, oh, I wonder why that is. Now I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. There's a very famous story that H.P. Lovecraft, during one of his uh, darker periods, was thinking about uh, uh, about the events in Europe and was uh, being overly sympathetic, let's just say, to some unpleasant people. And then Robert E. Howard said he would come and beat him if he didn't uh, get a reality check. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, thankfully, he uh, did there. But going on with that, I, I decided to uh, present that premise uh, to uh, the other guys. And David Hamlin came up with the idea of each of the stories uh, following the MacGuffin, so to speak, of the Tales of the Al Azif and how uh, the first story would be how the book that would be the predecessor to the Necronomicon was written and follow it through history toward uh, chronologically – through each of their our stories and world, 
until it reached the ending, which is my post-apocalyptic story. So I would write the first story and the last. And that worked out pretty well. Tales of the Al Azif is a pretty popular book in Lovecraft circles, at least as niche markets of niche markets go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, you know, I mean, there's Lovecraft fans, and we have people who read Lovecraft fiction by other people than Lovecraft. So it's it's a market, but let's just say it, we're we're doing this for the love. And uh, we did that, and we decided to do Tales of the Yogg-Sothoth as well. And David Hambling was every bit as important to this as me. And he actually has done another book that's an anthology that I'm not in, but I would recommend called... And I'm going to have to look uh, this up there because my uh, memory is terrible. Yes, The Book of Yig, which is uh, coming out very soon. And that's by him, Matthew Davenport, Peter Rallick, and Mark Howard Jones. It's all about Lovecraft Serpent Man. So he took this format and ran with it. Hmm, that was from Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I think that makes the anthologies all the better because you actually have a story that's being built on and working from it. And I would say rather than short stories, these are novellas, which they're, uh, they're long enough for you to get attached to the characters and do a little bit of world building in addition to just, yes, and John went into the haunted house. There was a monster. It ate him. <laughs> so, but getting back to what I, one of the things I asked is that, did you give them much information? I mean, did you give them like your first story and your last, or did you just kind of say, Here's some key pieces of information that need to carry through for this book, because I'm noticing like the very next book after we leave the 1100s is welcome to the wild, wild west. And I'm going, wow, this is quite the change. And it's really good. It's it, it, again, it's a really good Western story that had that just, you know, as I, I said to Dome, each one of these stories is a really good story in its setting. And then somebody just liberally took that H.P. Lovecraft seasoning and shook it all over it. Oh, yeah. And this, yeah, and this is, but each one of these does this as you move forward through it. And so I, I just, I'm, is, was there, did you have to tell them a lot or did you, did these authors, did you just hand them to them and they just ran with it? I guess is is the big question here. Um, I would say six of 12, half a dozen of the other. In this case, uh, what the linking factor of the books is, Three things. Yaxathoth, obviously, who is an eternal immortal god, so you don't really need to write around uh, that. Uh, the cult of Yaxathoth, which is always trying to bring Yaxathoth to this world and make everything crazy. Uh, and finally, uh, a character named Rebecca, who is uh, an unfortunate character who has her origins in the events of the first story. And we follow her journey, so to speak, as uh, more and more she becomes a corrupted by the forces of Yogg-Sothoth and uh, eventually turns from a, her original state to just another monster in Lovecraft's uh, vast collection. So I guess uh, the only thing you said is, and I'm using these terms in quotes, and I think you will understand why if, if the listeners don't quite, is that it's, you know, as long as they didn't annihilate her from all existence, quote, in quotes, and she could she could in some way continue on into the next story. Uh, Everything was was hunky dory. Yes, uh, this is the thing about H.P. Lovecraft's uh, forces. They are they are eternal, immortal, and unkillable. But you know you can always push them back to sleep for a little while longer. They're not. You can like, ding them like, up a little bit along the way. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> thing 
you uh, never get a total victory in the world of H.P. Lovecraft because uh, humanity is utterly insignificant there. Uh, but you can scurry away from their boot for a little while longer. <laughs> they're you not put actually, back to sleep. Yeah, they're not actually planning to uh, smack you uh, down with their boot. They're not looking to stomp you like Satan. Uh, you're just in the way, and uh, if you can get, if you can avoid their attention for a while, or maybe also again work to keep them from waking up and destroying the world for a little while longer, you're fine. But it's very much the case of uh, if you're trying to sting them uh, to uh, and uh, kill them, you're doing it wrong. Mm. Yeah, because it, it 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 is really with with any of these. It's just it. I think one of the things I've always loved about Lovecraftian horror is that every single one of the characters, live or die, um, they they are fighting forces that they don't stand a chance against. Uh-huh. You know, so it is only sheer luck, or as as it's said in quite a few of the books, the stars are either in alignment or they're not, or or if they can just hold out for that moment when the stars are no longer in alignment, they they can win the day, or or maybe you know you know alter a, a ceremony just enough to mm. you know k- keep them from w- from calling on these beings that are just infinitely powerful yeah yeah I actually, it, it, I, it's go ahead oh I, I was pretty much done i was just kind of just oh. saying this that it's it's one of these it's one of these things where you know the characters you know when they do survive they've survived you know and they've gotten this they've they've done they've succeeded defeating these immense forces Sometimes driven a little insane, of course, but, you know, they, they've managed to succeed against, you know, what should be insurmountable forces. Mm-hmm. One of the things I actually have always found uh, tickles my cynical little heart is the difference between the cultists and uh, the heroes in your typical pulpy Lovecraftian story, which is what I say that the humans are at least significant enough that they can have some sort of effect is both of them are deeply wrong about just how much the the great old ones care about their situation. The cultists think uh, that the the great old ones want to be uh, resurrected or summoned or to destroy the world when, quite simply, they probably have no idea the cultists even exist, but uh, humans are so desperate to be important that they are uh, literally letting the lion into the house uh, just because they think, oh, well, uh, the lion shall reward me for feeding it. And it's like, who are you? Yeah, or exactly. It's not what, so much a lion as the T Rex. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things not I've so, always loved about it. Yeah. Oh yeah, let's go bigger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, oh, my, there yeah. there are Lovecraftian monsters that are uh, alien that also get worshipped, and so, but you know, they go from the lion to Godzilla, and let's just say the people worshiping Godzilla, Godzilla does not care if you pray to it or make sacrifices. Yeah. Exactly. It, it it just it 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 a hundred thousand years ago, you know, Godzilla walked through an area that you know few few hundred years ago later is Tokyo. Whoops. Well, yeah. bigger buildings. I'm yeah. still walking through here. Yeah, and you know, maybe if you maybe the cultists are like leaving a trail of Snickers uh, for it to follow, <laughs> or or radioactive whatever Godzilla eats, and you know, that's right? Exactly. What the cultists are doing and. Whenever the uh, the ceremonies actually work and the stars are rising, they've been very stupid to try and uh, lead a party right to where uh, they live. Yeah, it's but it, but it's always fun these characters. I think it's one of the things I enjoy. We all know that they they're crazy, you know, try to bring about this and you know think that they're going to get rewarded. I mean, it even happens in your story, 
you know, in a few places you can see it in, in the stories in this book, is that these people that think, oh, I'm going to get a big reward when all of this happens. Oh, yeah. It's like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're, you're, you're going to get eaten. You're just we'll see who gets to be the first one to be sacrificed. Oh, yeah. I, I strongly recommend David Neal Wilson's story in this, aside from my own, uh, which is based upon uh, this very uh, Lovecraftian scholar sort of fellow named Donovan DeChance, who is uh, all sorts of civilized, coming to uh, the boonies of absolute nowhere to meet with this local redneck. And they're, they're having to deal with some very stupid cultists trying to destroy the world. <laughs> yeah, I'm only halfway through that one, but I'm absolutely loving it. I think I'm going to finish that that right after. Yeah, right after I, I just the have podcast. to say it's there, the done what horror. <laughs> yep. Yeah. No, it is really that's perfect name for it. It is. It is really good. I'd have to back you up on that one. Yeah, it's like I, I've known some some very uh, cultish sort of people in the backwoods of uh, Kentucky here who uh, wouldn't, who probably would give these guys a run for money and definitely should not have magic books themselves. <laughs> it, it makes you wonder where they got them is the better question <laughs> uh it's like someone's yard sale probably a uh, grandma's house <laughs> why are they still playing with ouija boards you never know uh, my favorite quote of the book is you're only immortal until you're killed <laughs> it's like you just keep stumbling across little snips like that and you just kind of go yep <laughs> there's yeah. there's there's a wry sensibility to lovecraftian humor in this book that just runs throughout the whole thing oh yeah and, and that's it's, thing, it's, thing it's I like wonderful it. well i definitely add a certain dry sardonicism that i think uh Howard uh, would appreciate, even if you uh, wouldn't quite agree with there, because at some point when you're uh, face to, uh, to face with something utterly beyond the human experience, you're just going to go, well, fuck. <laughs> and you don't have much choice with... at that point. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's also another thing I like about the Lovecraftian world. That's so uh, science fiction, fantasy, mystery combo is uh, even the super powerful ancient alien things aren't immortal in the sense of uh, the universe being out for them. The universe is so cold and indifferent, you know, sometimes bad things happen to them too. So there's a, uh, in uh, the original Dunwich horror, uh, the quote unquote villains are all certain. Everything is going to go their way, but they can't account for just all sorts of bad luck happening there at uh, just to spoil something that's 80 years old, uh, probably even older than uh, the main villain gets killed by a dog <laughs> that just, you know, got loose and just <laughs> tore into it in there. And that more or less saves the world more than anything else there because, you know, it was vicious and uh, he smells weird. <laughs> Remember, everybody, he said spoilers, you know, even though it's 80 years. <laughs> he, he did. He absolutely did. I've been trying hard not to do it. He's throwing them out left and right, like uh, like a pack of dogs is chasing his car and he's throwing out stakes at this point. <laughs> uh, like, I'm like, man, the Dunwich Horror is older than the. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. At that, that point, on. yeah. If, 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 there, Why are you reading be a... this my book before you're reading the what inspired it? <laughs> <laughs> you need to yeah, watch I'll, I'll... one before Matrix Two, man, or at all. <laughs> 
Last, my favorite one was somebody was uh, I was talking about Jaws at the ending of it. He goes, I haven't seen it yet. No spoilers. I'm going, seriously, you, you have not seen Jaws yet? Sorry, you don't get to call spoilers on that one. It's new to me. It was made in the 60s. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Kong does not get down, does not climb down the Empire State Building. And Soylent Green is human. What can I tell you? <laughs> he falls off. And he lives it. No! He's just an ape. We're going to have an all-spoiler show one day. <laughs> Luke is... Darth Vader is Luke's father. <laughs> Unless you're in the line, that's not... that's For the Empire Strikes Back, you don't get to call that. <laughs> Some people are still waiting in line. I swear to God, uh, somewhere, yeah. possibly Malaysia. I don't know. Uh. This is this is, you know, as, as long as I've been reading your stuff, and it's it's been a while. I think, you know, when I was still working years ago, and I w- I would get your audiobooks, uh, the Super Villainy series. Mm-hmm. And I would I would spend months. I think I bought like the first four or five of them on audiobooks, mm-hmm. and uh, for months, my commute back and forth was just those books, mm-hmm. and it was great <laughs> because there there was just puns and sarcasm and, and silliness and fun and. And 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 superheroes and and science fiction and and great stuff, and it, it was like listening to my one of my best friends and I just throwing lines back and forth for hours and hours and hours every day going back and forth to work, and and then we had you on the show and and this is now I think either the third or fourth time, and each time has been more fun than the time before, but I I never really thought I would actually have fun with Lovecraft. I don't know why. I, I I honestly don't know why. I think because it was a step too far out of my depth, a step too far beyond my comfort zone. But I, in the back of my mind, I had the I had the thought that if anybody could bring me to it, it it was it was my dear friend and and a guy with a, a sense of humor with Lovecraft who who could do it for me. And and it was you, and it has been you. The book is. The Tales of Yog Sothoth. Sothoth. Yog Sothoth. Can't pronounce it incorrectly. Go ahead. Not Yog Sothoth. How's that? Yeah. It, like I said, you can pronounce it any way you want because Lovecraft would say like it's made for aliens. Come on. Tales of Yog Sothoth. <laughs> Humans cannot pronounce it correctly, so go ahead. Anything is right. Edited by C.T. Phipps, with. Stories by himself, as well as Matthew Davenport, David Hambling, David J. West, David Now Wilson. Great stuff. Great stuff uh, that takes you places you haven't been before, places I've never been before. And fun stuff. CT and, and, and not only that, book number seven in the Tales of Super Villainy is coming out. It's out of Audible now. And we're having you back soon to talk about that. But thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. Thank you. No, man, it's been fun. It's always fun having you on. 
and sooner rather than later you make it into the five timers club <laughs> so thanks so much man for coming on tonight you got it sci-fi saturday night is the official podcast of granite con plastic city comic con and the upper valley comic expo we are also sponsored by dreamforge magazine a superb magazine of fantasy and science fiction and comic art house visit comic art house for some of the best deals on original art from dozens of your favorite artists and if you're looking for a really great gift book for that rapidly approaching semi-annual Fairbanks Melt Day celebration, consider a look at Sci-Fi Saturday Night's first anthology, My Peculiar Family, now on Amazon and barnesandnoble.com. My Peculiar Family, the audiobook, is available on Audible, because I'm not sure where else you could find it. Our intro production was provided by Rob Watts. For more of his amazing stuff, just look at robwattsonline.com. And don't forget to try the Watt sauce. We have, we love it. Our outro was provided by Lawrence Made Me Cry. You can find Lawrence Made Me Cry's music on Bandcamp. And a whole lot of love to Jojo and Celine. Many thanks to the gang from his booking books. Thank you, Captain Cam. This is Dome saying, Terry and Jeannie, shared pain is lessened, shared joy increased. Thus, do we all refute entropy. Better things are coming, Stacy. Stay strong, Liz. So, unless it's daytime, good night, everybody. Wow!